We are going to continue this morning in what's been our summer teaching series here at The Journey. We're calling Best Supporting Actors, the New Testament edition. Did the Old Testament last summer. But we're looking at some people whose lives are recorded in the Bible, but maybe not quite at length. They're not the most prominent people featured there, but God worked in and through them in some powerful ways. And today we're going to be looking at a guy by the name of Ananias. Ananias, the name is a beautiful name, a Hebrew name, which means the Lord has dealt graciously. The Lord has dealt graciously. What a great name. Apparently it was a fairly common name back in New Testament times because there's actually three guys named Ananias in the New Testament book of Acts. There's a, a high priest, Ananias, in Acts chapter 23. There's an Ananias in Acts chapter 5 who, along with his wife Sapphira, has a story that's uh, a, kind of a troubling story in the Bible. And if you know that story and you saw the name Ananias, you thought maybe I'd talk about him. I'm sorry. I won't, but I would direct you back to a prior sermon series at The Journey on our podcast, uh, June 23rd, 2013. Our senior pastor, Tom, uh, preached on that particular story, did a great job. So you can look that up if you want. But the Ananias we're looking at today is found uh, primarily in Acts chapter 9. And if you're following along in the, the Pew Bibles, that's on page 777 in most of them. Uh, this Ananias was a real supporting actor, so to speak, in the life of the Apostle Paul, who really, second to Jesus, the most prominent figure in the whole New Testament. Paul ended up writing half the books of the New Testament. He was the primary apostle to the, the non-Jewish people. It took the church from being a primarily Jewish thing to all nations, which it was intended to be. Um, someone who God worked through in a mighty and powerful way in his life. But he was not always the Apostle Paul. In fact, when we first meet him in the book of Acts, he was a guy by the name of Saul, his Jewish name, and he was not yet the one uh, promoting the church of Jesus. In fact, he was attacking it. And so we'll actually refer back to the previous page. The beginning of Acts chapter 8 is where we meet Saul, first of all, in the book of Acts. This comes right after the story of the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen was the first person who was put to death for his faith in Jesus. And, and uh, the book describes him being brutally stoned to death for giving testimony to Jesus. And Saul was right there at the center of it. And so in Acts 8, verse 1, it says this, And Saul approved of their killing him. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Then we take a little detour as the church is scattered and pick up here in chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So we'll pause there. Now, th this is Saul as, as we meet him in the book of Acts. Later on in his writings, he describes himself as a violent man, a blasphemer and a persecutor of the church of God. He describes himself as the worst of sinners. But he was, he was a violent person in this way. Twice it points out that he dragged off both men and women, kind of physically grabbing hold of people. And by going to Damascus, 
He was not content to just drive believers out of Jerusalem, but he goes and hunts them down over a hundred miles away so that they can't find refuge and they can't hide out. And murderous threats. I mean, he was looking to put these people to death. These are a couple highlights from what we read. Saul began to destroy the church, was breeding out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Um, but then this happens on his way to Damascus. Verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. We'll pause there. So he has had an encounter now with the risen Jesus, the one he was uh, so against. He's encountered Jesus. This is a famous story in the New Testament. It's kind of known as Saul's conversion story. He has an encounter with the risen Christ on the road. And this will change everything, change everything about his life from here on out. But it's just the beginning of the change because as of now, Saul's not really doing much. He's, he's lying helplessly, blind, three days, not eating or drinking anything. And this is where Ananias comes in. We've looked at Saul's encounter with Jesus, but we're going to really focus today on Saul's encounter with Ananias. It's his first encounter with the church, with the, with the believers, post-seeing Jesus. He's had a lot of encounters with believers up until this point, but they've all been violent. They've all been him attacking, destroying, trying to, trying to put them away, put them to death. And now is going to come his first interaction with the church after seeing Jesus. He's got to wonder how's this going to go. But it's a beautiful interaction. It starts in verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me to you so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. And the rest is history. Once Saul gets up and regains his strength, he, he immediately begins proclaiming Jesus to everyone around him, first here in Damascus, and then for the remaining 30 or so years of his life, everywhere he goes, everywhere the Lord takes him, all around the Mediterranean and cities and countries to all sorts of people groups, Saul just begins to proclaim Jesus and to call people to Jesus and to plant churches and to make Jesus known. But Ananias really kind of gets him going. Most of the rest of the book of Acts is actually written about Paul and his, his adventures, his exploits. 
From here on out, though, who knows what happened to Ananias? We don't know anything else about the rest of his story, but this, this is what we have here. He does get mentioned one more time, though, in Acts chapter 22. Uh, if you want to flip ahead, page 790, I believe. There's a point much later when Paul is telling his own story of coming to Jesus, his own conversion story, and he is sure to mention Ananias in Acts 22, starting in verse 12. He says, a man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. So we get a little bit more here. We learn a little bit more about Ananias' background. He was a Jewish person who had some, at some point come to faith in Christ, although we still don't really know how that happened. And we learn a little bit more of the interaction and the words that Ananias spoke to Saul, uh, in particular giving him his sort of new mission, his new life's purpose from Jesus. But that's it that we know about Ananias. But it's interesting. You really can't tell the story of Paul's conversion without also talking about Ananias. The gospel writer Luke doesn't do it in chapter 9, and Paul himself, in telling his own story, you can't tell his conversion story without also talking about Ananias. And to any of us who've come to faith, who've had that sort of, of transformation in our lives where we've come to believe in Jesus, none of us really can tell our stories without mentioning other people as well. It's never just us and Jesus, and it's not just Saul and Jesus here. It's Saul and Jesus and other people, Ananias in particular. It's interesting. I think a, a key to this is found in, in our main chapter, chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. And what Jesus says to Saul is really profound. It'll be up on the screen as well. When Jesus speaks to him, he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And when Saul asks who it is, he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But when we read the account earlier of what Saul was doing, who was it actually that he was going after and attacking? the church. It was believers, people following Jesus. Those were the ones he was dragging off, hauling off, threatening, putting in jail, and putting to death. But here, Jesus says, I'm the one you're persecuting. Why are you persecuting me? Could it be that Jesus so closely identifies with his people, with his church, that it's really one and the same? To have been attacking them and destroying them and persecuting the church was really to be attacking Jesus himself? That Jesus so closely identifies with his people that to be persecuting them, to be an enemy of them, is to be an enemy of Jesus himself. And so for Saul to really come to know Christ, to come into relationship with Christ, to be reconciled to Christ also means being reconciled to his people and to come into relationship with his people. And that's where Ananias comes in. It's that first point of contact God's not just dealing with Saul isolated on his own somewhere, but he's drawing him into full reconciliation with himself and with his people. And Ananias is his instrument to do that. And it's a beautiful interaction. I want to highlight uh, three things I think that we can see and take away from the story when Ananias meets Saul. When Ananias meets Saul. First, this story begins with an act of risky obedience on Ananias' part. 
We see risky obedience here. Now, Saul is not the only one in this story who sees a vision, who sees the Lord and hears his voice. Ananias does too. Just this guy who's described as a disciple. So, you know, not just the super apostle has a, a powerful experience of hearing God, but so does Ananias. And he, and he hears the Lord tell him something terrifying. He knows this guy is coming to hunt him down, and God says to him, oh, would you go to the house where Saul is staying? Bless him. This has to be scary. I, I'm trying to think. I mean, can you imagine if you were, say, a Jewish person in Poland around the time of World War II, and you had heard that some Gestapo police from Nazi Germany had come into your city, and you knew what they were there for. And what would you do? You would hide, of course, and hide the people you love, try to keep from being found. Imagine then if the Lord says to you, oh, go to the house where they're staying. Pray for them. What? You can understand Ananias' hesitation at first. Uh, Lord, I've heard many reports about this man, the harm he's done and, and what he's come here to do. He's got state-sponsored authority to come and round us up to destroy our lives, to take us away and potentially kill us. It's a common thing in the Bible when the Lord asks somebody to do something for them to hesitate at first and say, really? And that generally doesn't disqualify them from what God wants to do. It doesn't disqualify Ananias here either. God doesn't condemn him for, for being hesitant, but he does eventually have his way and answers him, go. Yeah, I, I understand why he might hesitate, but I'm telling you to go. And we're told, so Ananias went. That's the key thing here. The Lord said go and Ananias went. We don't get much of the inner workings of his heart and what he was feeling throughout all this and what his demeanor was like and what he talked about on the way. The key details are the Lord said go and Ananias went. He was obedient. And it was risky. But the point here is the obedience. Not just to be reckless. We don't read this story and say, oh, let's just go on out and find the most dangerous people we can find and try to minister to them. Um, it's not a call to be reckless. It's a call to be obedient. Not to take risk for its own sake, but to assume the risk that comes with obeying, obeying Jesus and doing what he says. We're not called to be reckless, but we're all called to be obedient. And that is going to come with risk. Just obeying Jesus, a life of obedience, naturally is going to involve some risk. It doesn't have to be anything super uh, profound like a vision from God telling us to do something like this. Just simply obeying the things that are kind of clearly commanded in Scripture, just living a life of obedience to the things that God has told us to do, it will inherently come with some risk, whether that's to uh, forgive other people or to love our enemies, to extend grace to those who've hurt us, whether it's to care for the orphan, the fatherless, to provide a home, whether it's to come close to those who are poor and marginalized and minister to their needs, whether it's to uh, trust God with our finances, to give sacrificially and generously, whether it's to uh, tell other people about Jesus, make him known, or to worship one God in a pluralistic culture, um, to act on faith when we don't know the outcome. I mean, all of these things are things that are, are just simply obedience to the things that God has told us to do, and, and they all will come with some kind of risk. And we see risky obedience here. Again, not risk for its own sake, but obedience that, that puts us in a position where we just don't know the outcome, where we could assume some suffering that we otherwise might not have in our lives. But that's what God calls Ananias to, 
and so he goes. Risky obedience is the beginning of this story. But then once Ananias goes, then when he enters the house, the next thing we see here is radical grace. Radical grace. This is ultimately a story of tremendous grace. Grace in two parts, really. I mean, Saul, Saul has been a bad dude until this point. He has sinned greatly against Jesus, and he has sinned greatly against people. And here he experiences radical grace. Two sides of it, really. Grace is like a beautiful two-sided coin. On the one hand, Saul does not get what he does deserve, and then he gets all kinds of things that he doesn't deserve. Grace is, grace is both of those things. I mean, on the one hand, Saul deserves to be punished. He comes face to face with Jesus he's been trying to destroy, and he realizes, oh, Jesus actually has the power to destroy me, but he doesn't. And he spares his life. He lets him live. He sinned greatly against the church. And, you know, rightly speaking, eye for an eye, he'd be due for all sorts of punishment, have all sorts of debt to pay, all sorts of ways they could hold it over his head. He does not get what he deserves. And then he gets way more than he does deserve. He gets all kinds of things. He gets healing. He gets a warm welcome and inclusion into the body that he'd been trying to destroy. He gets the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he gets a whole new calling, and in fact, a really significant part to play in what God is doing in the world, where his mission up until that point had been to destroy what God was doing through Jesus. Now he gets to be a pillar of this community and someone that God is going to use powerfully. That's all grace, too. Not getting the punishment that he deserves, not having to pay the debt that he owes, that's grace that Jesus extends to us. But also grace on top of that to then get gifts bestowed that we never earned, never deserved. He gets both of these things. Saul gets all kinds of grace here. But the grace he gets is not just an idea or out there somewhere, and it's not something he experiences alone with Jesus in a room. The grace is embodied in Ananias. Grace is meant to be embodied in the people of God. It's profoundly embodied in Jesus. You know, God didn't just say from a distance, oh, I forgive you. I want to show grace to the human race. Like he sent Jesus to embody what grace actually looks like. And now he embodies his grace through Jesus's people. And he embodies it through Ananias. There's really no other way that Saul would really get or experience or taste the kind of grace that God had for him apart from actually Ananias demonstrating it. And let's look at what Ananias does here, this grace. For one, he touches Saul. He put his hands on him. And this is not like a revenge, like punch him in the face for all the things that he's done. Like places his hands on him in a way of blessing, uh, a, an affectionate kind of way. You know, touch is a really powerful communicator of love and grace, whether it's a hug, an embrace, a handshake, a, a hand on the shoulder. It's, it's that kind of touch. It's the way that Jesus healed a lot of people in the Gospels, who were considered outcasts of the marginalized in their society, who no one would come near. Jesus didn't just heal them from a distance, like, oh, get better, but came near, touched them, placed his hands on people who might not have received a kind human touch in years to demonstrate his grace. So Ananias does that for Saul, comes near to him. Then he calls him Brother Saul. That's how he addresses him in verse 17. Brother Saul. Immediately, too, he, he welcomes him in to this community. 
that he'd been trying to destroy. Brother Saul, and not just after a while, not after you prove yourself that you've really changed your ways, or not after you do a bunch of penance to make up for what you've done to us, but immediately he greets him as brother. Such inclusion. You are family to me. Not just Saul, some guy that I have to talk to now, but you are my brother. I, I fully receive you as my brother. He agrees with what Jesus is doing here. You know, God has called him to himself, and, and so in turn, he's now Ananias' brother, and, and he recognizes that. Brother Saul, he puts his hands on him, and then he, he prays for his healing, makes him well. I mean, there ought to be a, maybe a little part of Ananias who was kind of happy to see Saul in that condition. You know, this, this vicious guy who'd been so cruel, now kind of helpless and, and blind and groveling. I mean, there's people, who, people who've hurt us, perhaps, or people who we know have done awful things, and there might be a part of us who would kind of like to see bad things happen to them, or who might not really want them to get better when they're hurting. But there's radical grace here. Ananias doesn't hold it over his head or say, oh, look who's the tough guy now, Saul. But he comes immediately beside him, places his hands, and, and heals him. He gets up and regains his strength, prays for his blessing, for his healing, just living out the life of Jesus to bless those who persecute you, to love your enemies. Then he, he fully brings him in, says, get baptized, the sign of ultimate belonging, in the church. This is, this is the real thing. And then and he gives them a commission and, and a new purpose in life. It's all radical, radical grace. And Ananias embodied that grace. I'm sure Ananias would have loved to hear that Saul changed. Like, oh, wouldn't it be nice if that guy who's been such a, a bad dude came to Jesus? That would be nice. And there might be people we are aware of in our lives or in the world who we look at and think, oh man, they really need Jesus. And we might be happy to hear, oh good, I'm glad they changed. I, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. But what if God might actually invite us to be part of the process of embodying the grace that it's going to take for that transformation to take place? Jesus didn't just tell Ananias, oh yeah, I'm going to change Saul and he could be happy with that. But he calls him to go and to embody that sort of grace. People don't transform. People don't amend their ways apart from the grace of Jesus. And it's really hard to know that grace if it's just a theory or if it's just something, a doctrine or something in our mission statement. It's got to be embodied in touch, in words, in kindness, in prayer for blessing and for healing and for the Holy Spirit to come. He calls us to embody grace, radical grace. That's what he does through Ananias and, and that God's grace becomes so much more real in Saul's life. Radical grace. And then finally, as a result of all of this, I think what we see in this story is a really robust conversion. This is known really as Saul's conversion story. And it is a robust conversion. It's very well-rounded. I mean, this is a real change that takes place in his life. A few weeks back when Len was preaching, he alluded to kind of three types of conversion, three strands of conversion that God wants to work out in our lives. And those are conversion to Christ himself, conversion to his church, and conversion to his mission. Conversion to Christ himself, to Christ's church, and to Christ's mission. All of this happens for Saul, all kind of wrapped into one. He goes from being an enemy of Jesus to one who calls him Lord. He goes from being an enemy of the church 
to not only a part of it, but a pillar of it, and a leader of it, and a propagator of the church. And he goes from being on mission to wipe out Jesus and his people, to being a, on mission for the rest of his life to call people to, to Jesus and to plant churches and to take the gospel where it hadn't been before. He's converted fully to Christ, to his church, and to his mission. And these are all things that God wants to work out in our lives. Not just one, not just two, but all of them. Now the conversion to Christ is, is kind of the primary thing. It's really central. Jesus encounters him first, and, and he needs to come to Jesus. He needs to acknowledge that, that Jesus is Lord. Conversion to Christ is primary, and if we just got the other two, you know, if we're just busy with church, if we just kind of like being a part of church or doing church stuff, but are not actually submitted to Jesus as Lord and haven't actually received his grace in our lives, that's not, that's not a good place to be. And some of the actually most potent warnings and, and uh, chilling words in scripture are reserved for people who sort of play church, who put on an act of religious activity and who do the stuff, but whose hearts are far from the Lord. That's, actually, that's really not a good place to be. That happens sometimes in places that are culturally Christian, where church is kind of a fashionable thing to, thing to do, but people may not necessarily be converted to, to Christ themselves fully. Not so much around here, but it could be. Uh, not a good place to be. But some of us, perhaps, we like Jesus. We like uh, our spiritual lives, but we're not so much into the communal aspect of it, which can be an understandable thing. I mean, church, whew, it, it, it's not always pretty. But none of us can reach our full spiritual potential on our own. None of us who want to walk with Jesus and know him will reach our full potential apart from other people, apart from the people of God. And really, conversion in the New Testament is one and the same. You don't just come to Jesus. You come to Jesus and by do, virtue of doing so are part of his people, whether you like it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not. Conversion to Christ and to his church, they go hand in hand. And it also means then becoming part of his mission, part of what he's doing in the world. Whatever purpose we've been living for, we're all living for, for something. We're all pursuing something. We all have some kind of drive in our lives. And the Lord wants to grab hold of those things to make us part of what he's doing, the building of his kingdom in the world. All of these things happen for Saul, converted to Christ, to his church, and to his mission. And we really need all three and I think Jesus wants all three for each of us, no matter who we are, where we're starting from today. Maybe we're totally new to all this. Maybe we, you have been living as kind of someone apart from Jesus or someone whose mission is antithetical to the things of, of God or maybe, you know, just totally apart from the church. Or maybe you've been part of church for a long time. You've been following Jesus a long time. Whatever the case may be or wherever in between, Jesus is calling us to all these things, to himself, deeper into his church, and deeper into his mission. And I think, you know, not only do we see that happen for Saul, but I think Ananias experiences a deeper conversion to all three of these things as well. All three of these things. I mean, he had called Jesus Lord, but this story takes it to a whole new level. I don't think he'd ever been called to do anything quite so risky, quite so scary, quite so daring. But his commitment and his life of following Jesus as Lord takes it to a whole new level here goes so much deeper. He'd been part of the church up until this point, that was clear, but I would imagine his vision of the church and what it is and what it could be was expanded profoundly by this interaction with Saul. I doubt up until this point he ever actually imagined the church with someone like Saul in it. 
There was the church over here trying to avoid Saul who was trying to kill. I doubt he ever imagined a church with Saul in it. And there might be people you just can't even imagine right now would be part of the church. You can't imagine a church with so-and-so in it. But what if that's what God wants to do? What if the person you can't imagine here is actually going to be one of the next leaders, one of the next pillars of the church, someone who God wants to work through profoundly, someone who God wants to use to shape this community? I don't think Ananias ever imagined someone like Saul in the church, and then once he was, I bet his picture of church was blown away. And he went deeper and deeper into what it means to actually be part of a body of Christ where Jesus breaks down dividing walls of hostility and makes reconciled friends out of previous enemies. His picture of what that looks like was greatly, greatly expanded. And I think his picture of what it means to be on mission with Jesus was expanded too. As he took a risk, as he stepped out, and as he ended up playing a role in something super profound in the sending of the ultimate apostle to take the gospel all over the Mediterranean world. Unbelievable. Ananias got to play a part in that. So he went deeper and deeper. We don't know how he came to faith in the first place, but his life was still about these three things, Christ, his church, and his mission. And we don't just get that one time, but it's something that Jesus calls us deeper and deeper into all throughout life with him. And it's pretty cool that they had each other in this. I think Saul needed Ananias to step into this. He needed Ananias' role to welcome him into the church, to propel him into his life with Christ and on his mission. I think Ananias needed Saul, too, to get a greater picture of what it means to follow Jesus and, and a greater picture of what the church looks like. I think we all grow a whole lot more when we're we're around other people. You know, if you're new to faith or you're just checking out faith, you need people who've been at this a while to help you grow deeper in Christ and in his community and in his mission. And if you've been at this a while, you really need to be around people who are brand new to it. And you need to be around people who you don't think of as church people to really get a deeper understanding of what it is to be with Jesus and to be in his church and to be on mission with him. I've seen a lot of beautiful examples of this over the years on a trip called Serve Up. Some of you might be familiar with this church. This church has supported it for many years. It's something that, that we put on with InterVarsity ever since 2006 after Hurricane Katrina. We've taken hundreds and hundreds of college students from New England down to do disaster relief work in cities like New Orleans and more recently Houston and Puerto Rico. Uh, and these teams are intentionally made up of people all over the map spiritually. So there's people who are really committed Christians who come, but they bring their friends, and some of them have been cynical, some of them have been outright hostile to faith or just apathetic about it, or uh, whatever the case may be. Whole range of things. And what happens on these trips is really a, a pretty beautiful thing. We've seen a, hundreds, literally hundreds of students come to faith in Jesus for the first time on Serve Up. And I can't think of a better place to really get started in your journey with Christ because they get all three of these things. They get Christ himself. They find him in the context of community. It's a communal experience, and so they realize, yeah, faith, faith is a, a community thing. And they come to faith in the context of mission, of doing good kingdom work in the world, of stepping outside of ourselves to love and to serve others. So they know that that's part of the deal, too. It can make for some pretty robust conversion, realizing that, yeah, I'm coming to Jesus and to his people and to his mission all at once. It's how it ought to be. Like, none of this should come as a surprise 
later. Like, oh, I came to Jesus, but I didn't know I I was now part of a church. Or, yeah, I I came to Jesus because I'd heard a a great appeal about what he could do for me. I didn't know it was going to cost me anything. I didn't know there was going to be any kind of sacrificial love or giving involved in that. Like, none of that should come as a surprise later. And so on Serve Up, it really doesn't. It's, it's coming to Jesus, coming into his community, and, and coming on mission. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, but behind every one of those stories of a student who, who comes to Christ on the trip, there's a friend who invited them. A friend who took a risk, perhaps, a little risky obedience to say, hey, would you come with me? on this spring break trip. And, and I know so many students who've been nervous to invite their friends. They think, oh yeah, I bet they'd love to go to New Orleans. I bet they'd like to build a house, but well, I don't know how they're gonna do in this Christian community thing. Or I don't know how they're gonna respond when we start looking at the Bible at night. And lo and behold, they see their friends dive into the community and fall in love with Jesus. And it blows their minds. And so for people who've been walking with God a while, who have this happen to them, their whole picture of what life with Christ is like and what his church could look like now, including all these people that weren't part of it before, and what his mission looks like. Oh, it's so much, it's just expanded profoundly on these trips. It's a beautiful thing when when we come together like that. We all need each other. Saul's need Ananias's, Ananias's need Saul's, and we're all growing deeper in Christ together. For me personally, I think one of the the best context for me growing and continually converting along these lines lately has been by the, the privilege of being part of our recovery ministry here at The Journey. The last uh, two and a half years, that God has just blessed us with a number of folks in our community who are actively in recovery and, and coming to Bible study here at The Journey. And for some reason, God asked me a couple of years ago to start this thing and to be part of leading it. And I thought, really, Lord, me? You know, I've such different life experience in some ways. I've thought, I don't know if I really belong here. And I've met a lot of people who've walked into the church and thought the same thing. Do I really belong here? In both cases, the answer is a resounding yes. Resounding yes. And I can't speak for all of you who've been part of the study, but I think I've seen some pretty profound conversion take place there. Some of you have, if you've been here for some of our baptism services, as people come to, come to Jesus, come to know his love and his grace for the first time, as they become enfolded into the, into the church, fully included, fully part of this community, and as they gain a whole new purpose and mission in their lives. But I tell you, I, I've changed every bit as much as anyone in that study, probably more than anywhere else in the last two years, by walking alongside my brothers and sisters in recovery, I've learned so much more of what it means to really follow Jesus, to really surrender him, to really uh, obey him as Lord. I've gained such a deeper appreciation of what the church is, what the church can be, especially as we demonstrate radical grace to each other. And man, I've, I've just been blown away by what by what God can do in people's lives. And, and I've been more fired up for mission for Jesus because of my friends in our recovery ministry than probably anything else. And I've learned more about Jesus there in the last few years than I probably learned in any seminary class that I've taken. And I'm so grateful that God has counted me worthy to be part of it and to just continue to grow deeper in my own conversion because we're all growing in Christ, in his church, and in his mission. 
So I don't know about for you what that'll look like. If you find yourself kind of resistant to one or two or three of these things, to the, the call of Jesus to obey him in your life, to really fully being part of his church, diving into community, owning the fact that by coming to Christ you are now one of his people, or perhaps his mission, stepping out, encountering people who are, who are different from you, engaging with brokenness in the world, demonstrating radical grace to those who perhaps don't even deserve it. But that's what Jesus does. He extends radical grace, and he probably wants to do so through you in one form or another. And I pray that we'd all, no matter where we're coming from or starting from today, would be a community that's always converting and always calling one another to conversion, calling one another, as Ananias called Saul, to follow Jesus, to fully come in and participate in the life of his people, and to be on mission, to gain, to step fully into the new purpose that Jesus has for our lives. Let me pray for us to be that kind of community. Lord, thank you for this beautiful story. Thank you first for Saul for showing us that, well, whatever the heck else we might have done, there's nothing that your grace can't overcome. Thank you for the power of your transformation in his life. Thank you for embodying your grace through Ananias. I pray that you would embody your grace here in this church community. Call us deeper and deeper, each one of us, Lord, to yourself, to calling you, Lord, and to doing what you say, to going where you, where you tell us to go. No matter how risky that may seem, when you say go, would we go, Lord? Would you work out your radical grace in and through us and call each of us deeper into a, a converted life, Lord, whether for the first time right now or whether we've been at this a really long time. Lord, let us, none of us come up short of the full transformation you want to work out in our lives. Let this be a community where we see more and more lives change, where we see more and more folks welcomed in and where we are changed as a, as a result of that. Do this kind of beautiful thing right here in our time, in our space, Lord. We invite you to have your way in Jesus' name.